At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Republican candidates for president face off the first debate of 2024. What pollster Frank Luntz will be watching. There's a lot of investment from people who watch shows like this. who are trying to figure out how to stop Donald Trump. And that's why tonight's debate is so important. And the fight over where to work. Companies from Goldman Sachs to Amazon dealing with cultural change. Workplace expert Jason Greer. The days of COVID where we are able to work remotely, they're gone. Plus, retailer losses from Shrink, a possible deal floated to end the Hollywood writer's strike, and, well, just get back in the office or quit. People said, I ain't moving and I'm working three days a week, and you can take this job and shove it. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yay. Everybody's there we here. Are. Yeah. Wow. And, and we're really bland, and you are right there, front Sunshine. and center. Yes. <laughs> yep. As we're in the same thing. Yeah. Canary in a coal mine. Well, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, let's talk about uh, some new rules that the FDIC is planning to propose. Uh, These rules will be for mid-sized lenders on Tuesday of next week. The proposal will include a requirement that banks with as little as $100 billion in assets issue enough long-term debt to try to cover capital losses if they ever fail. The lenders will also have to bolster their hypothetical wind-down plans known as living wills. They would have to identify parts that could be sold separately, potentially making the sale of a collapsed firm more attractive to buyers. All of this, of course, in the wake of the SVB failure and questions about regional banks and the like. And the question, of course, is, is this enough? Will it help things if, in fact, we do get into a situation where office real estate or multifamily ends up hitting some of the regional banks later on? In the short term, it'll cost everybody right. more. Right. It seems contractionary. I don't, this morning, now I'm worried about stagflation again. I, I don't know. I'm, because I'm wor- of the story in the journal about yeah, getting it, back to 2% quickly or slowly? Because I think if, rate, if rates do say. come down, it's going to be for the wrong reason. It's going to be because you know, China so is just, we were talking about that all day yesterday. China and Europe is, is not much better. So I don't know how we're going to have great yeah, my economic flash growth. numbers in, in, in Europe this morning were not great. Terrible. In yeah. Germany, in, in, in an inflation. We wanted rates to be lower. We wanted the Not for the wrong reason, yeah. though. And not if inflation stays high. And inflation might stay high just because we still have a lot of, of How is inflation demand. staying high if we well, come down to 2%? Well, and a lot of federal spending that's still come to Because all the federal spending yeah. and because UPS, these guys, the, the no, American pilots just got 40% right. pay increases. So great for wages, though. It's good for wages. I'm but just worried about stagflation. Does it, does it get you into this? Of course it's inflationary, yeah. but the truth is, if, but if inflation is coming down, if, if the overall if inflation, is. if the wages ultimately outpace the inflation, oh, well, that's, that's a news. win. If, the, if that happens. But the 3.2%, uh, 
Nick Timoros has this article right. today. I saw the, I saw the piece. I'm wandering through. As you get ready for Jackson Hole, this is the commentary. This is the thought. Uh, do we do this quickly and risk we need, more, uh, more painful lessen to the economy? Or Berman's do we do right. Slowly? We need to move the goalposts. 3%. 3%. Would be acceptable for Because inflation. we're not getting below yeah. 3 I don't think. Oh, you could. It would just be pretty painful. Well, then it would be kept for bad reasons. Yeah. And, and I don't know. Maybe the recession is off the table now, but I don't know. The stuff for the banks, the Eventually. regional bank stocks have been pretty weak recently. They've fluctuated up and down, but I think some of the pressure, as you mentioned, these new regulations will be uh, contractionary to it. Also, though, right. they're dealing with higher rates, what's been happening on the long end, and that's always raising questions about what else it might uncover, the pain that we saw right. um, back in the spring. Yeah, just, you know, Fed's still got maybe some work to do with inflation. I think that the, I don't know how long we can count on uh, the U.S., but we got all that federal spending. Maybe that continues to, uh, you know, to, but, to spur demand, and maybe we do and save. And you have other nations that are spending, too, as a result. China is supposedly spending, like, $30 billion yeah, to try and booster the chips that we've done. That's the same amount of spending we're doing in the chips act. If they only grow 3% from here on out. I mean, it, what, what yeah. people say has been 30, China's been 35% of the growth that the globe has had. It, it accounts for China. So that's, uh, you can't count on them. Let's get to, now to an update on a story we told you about last month. As part of its push to get employees back to, uh, to the office, Amazon is demanding that some staffers move to a central hub to be with their team. And those who are unwilling to comply are being offered the option uh, to find another job internally or resign. CNBC has learned that some employees are choosing to quit rather than uproot, uproot their family or break their housing lease. I do remember in the old days, um, if you had a a decent employer. People moved. I had kids. I, I knew them for a while, and they would be gone. They're, you know, it, it used to be fairly normal for where you'd have to move for a good job. You see the, uh, the Fablemans or whatever it's called. He had been moving all over the place. He had moved to Arizona. Had moved to California. That used to be the way Chase it was. Chase the job. Yeah, I think it's a. It's a the quick family is from a lot of different places because I think, think that about was, it. Yeah, well, that was around. Trust yeah. me, we did. Right. That, that Texas, used to Oklahoma, be the way. Indiana, Ohio, New Jersey. Before people said, I ain't moving and I'm working three days a week and you can take this job and shove it. People are too soft now, I think, Andrew. They, you know, you're lucky to have a job. I think, As I said yesterday, I think when I'm watching. You mean lucky that people actually ways. don't have to chase the job. I guess right? that's, that, that, that's that would be a good uh, employment a good market. Right. It, it is a it's employee, good employment market. An employee it's good thing for market. employees. It's an employee market right now more than an employer's uh, market. Although can, some employers slowing are down. pushing back. Yeah. And if, speaking of those in-office policies getting a little stricter, Goldman Sachs is now urging its employees to work from the office five days a week. They've been doing that for a while. But Bloomberg is reporting that some senior managers have grown frustrated by the reluctance of staff in non-revenue producing groups to return full time. In a statement, Goldman's HR chief said that there is flexibility when needed, but that the company is reminding its employees of the existing policy. By contrast, Citigroup and J.P. Morgan have been urging managers to enforce a three-day-a-week guideline for many employees. J.P. Morgan managing directors are expected to commute every day of the week to work. What? <laughs> Every day? <laughs> um, where are the hubs? Where are the hubs? Are For they, Amazon? Yeah. I mean, is it like in Brockton, Massachusetts or something? I mean, where do you got to go? It's probably like Tucson or something. Aren't they good they places? They have a D.C. No, there's, um, they have big offices uh, in a whole bunch of yeah. places. D.C. Yeah, they even have, have an office in New York. They have, have an office in New York. But where are the big center hubs? Where are they asking people to move? We'll have well, to ask. Well, it's not Sunbelt. 
Well, no, no. It depends what we're talking about. There's the office group. Yeah. People who are in office. That's obviously still Seattle. That's New York. Don't they have a nice they have a facility in out, uh, out in uh, Queens? In Long Island City. Yeah. yeah. That never got made. Yeah. That's right. Hollywood studios and streaming services have just disclosed the terms of a revised proposal to the writers in an effort to try and end the strike. The new proposal would give writers a compounded 13% pay increase over the three-year contract. AI-generated written content would not be considered literary material. The writers' union had said that the studio's offer failed to protect writers from existential threats. The union described the public release of the company's proposal as an effort to circumvent negotiators and appeal to rank-and-file members and called it what they said in their words, a bet that we will turn on each other. The writers have been on strike for 113 days now. You, do, you have a, do you watch Jeopardy? Uh, not lately. You don't, you don't? No. Haven't in a while. Years, really. Because Ken is great. I'm not a big fan. And I think because of this, Maya and Bialik won't cross the line, so it's going to be Ken. So that if, that if, you, if you are a Ken Jennings versus Maya, and there are, if you look at the, what goes on with Twitter, there are many that, like, I mean, Ken is... Whew, off the charts, right? I mean, have you ever seen him? He's off the, he said some weird stuff, very weird stuff, and he almost got canceled for good from it, but I don't have a, I don't in have terms a of a host. I'm still rooting for Faber. I'm rooting for Faber. Faber's not at. coming yeah. back. He's That's not coming where I'm back. at. But I prefer, you know, I but, like Faber where he is. But I get does, so tired watching yes, it now, I can't, I can't even make it to the end, because it's just like trying to. Because it's like 6.30 p.m.? Yeah. <laughs> No, because you have to, <laughs> after doing this all day, to try to come up with those and, and, answers, and answers. to frame it in the form of a question. That is tricky. All right, people, heads up. Check out shares of Foot Locker. That stock is now down 19%. This uh, feels an awful lot like what we heard from Dick's Sporting Goods yesterday. Uh, this is a different reason. The earnings at Foot Locker came in at an adjusted four cents a share. That matched the street's estimates. That's on revenue of, of $1.86 billion. That was just shy of expectations. Comp store sales fell 9.4% for the quarter as expected. The company is citing ongoing consumer softness for the drop. They're slashing their guidance for the full year. But the real reason the stock is down on top of all of that is because they are pausing their dividend. This is pretty important. They are suspending their dividend, they say, while they continue to try and continue with their plan. Remember, this is Mary Dillon, the new CEO who's taken over. Um, they are looking at this softening trends in July and, as a result, adjusting their outlook to allow them to try and best compete for price like a chicken egg, it's a chicken consumers. egg thing, though. It, it, softening, but they want to make no, sure but, they continue with their right. strategic initiatives. But the reason they're cutting, they're pausing the dividend is because business sucks. So yes. badly. So and it's they like need a to chicken egg. Right. But it's a 7% yielder. So now they're... Well... <laughs> you don't have money for they, your dividend. They then. will pay out the board's recently approved October payout. Beyond that, they say they will update the market on a go-forward capital allocation, on a go-forward mm. basis for their capital allocation plans and the timing around their longer-term financial targets. Mary Dillon says they remain committed to their lace-up plan that they introduced uh, at their investor day back in March. That's cute. They're encouraged by the progress they're making against the strategic priorities, but what they're seeing is a softening in the consumer. And that's Weird. what we heard from Macy's yesterday. That's what we heard from Dick's Sporting Goods yesterday. And this is very similar to what we saw with the reaction to Dick's Sporting Goods saying it was because of theft 
um, and shoplifting that was taking place there. That's not what Foot Locker is saying, but they are pausing or suspending their dividend while they try and figure out because they want to make sure they continue to spend on, on those uh, initiatives. You can see um, Dick's today down another one and a quarter percent. So it is not making a comeback after, I think, the end of the session, it was down by about 25 percent. Um, we'll keep an eye on this very closely. All of this kind of as we head toward the Fed and the commentary that we'll be hearing from Jay Powell on Friday at Jackson Hole about what they see in the economy right I now, mean, too. Yesterday, when we were talking about shrinkage, I mean, who came up with that? McKinsey or something? Shrink? I mean, what's wrong with theft? Because it's more than theft just theft. Theft is a good word. Theft is like the right. stuff that's happening behind well, the scenes. Well, it's more than it's just shrinkage. Damaging, but it's shrinkage also doesn't describe what damage. it is at all. No, it, it, shrinkage, it, it, you have less of the stuff than you came in with. Stealing, theft, damage. and shop. Use a couple and, words. And it's damage. Then. But yes, shrinkage, nobody knows what it is. But they it's also, also employees who are, who are stealing the stuff. Yeah. Stealing. They're not shrinking the stuff. Sometimes it's, they're losing it's busted it. stuff. They're like losing it. It's broken in the, in the it's shipping broken, process. It's broken. McKinsey. Dumb word. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the GOP's first presidential debate of the 2024 campaign. Tonight, already? And is there a race among Democrats? Pollster Frank Luntz is next. Just ask the governor of California because he's launching a campaign, not for president now, but for president four years from now. Just ask uh, someone like a Cory Booker. There are people who are waiting in the wings. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yep, gang's all here. What's going on? Is there uh, anyone going to watch this? I don't know. We're going to see. Well, let's talk about it uh, because tonight is the first Republican primary debate. It's taking place in Milwaukee. Current polling indicating former President Trump's popularity has surged ahead of others in the race for the Republican nomination. And his ongoing uh, legal challenges don't seem to be stopping that. Uh, meanwhile, his closest contender, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, experienced a significant decline in support. Other candidates remain in the single digits. Former president won't join the stage tonight, opting to skip the debate and uh, maybe poke in the eye of uh, the folks at Fox by uh, releasing, or at least maybe Car maybe Tucker Carlson is, is the poke in the eye, releasing a previously taped interview at the same time that they're going to uh, they're post. Bo they're both on, pokers, I'm pretty on, sure. On Twitter. <laughs> they're both pokers. Uh, joining us right now is Frank Luntz, uh, FIL Inc. pollster. Uh, Frank, it's great to see you. Let's talk about what's at stake tonight, uh, if anything, uh, given what, what seems to be, I don't know, will there be attention on this? Will there not be attention on this? What's going to happen? 
there's going to be a lot of attention and a lot of people are tuning in because tonight is the official beginning of 2024. Not Labor Day, not Thanksgiving, not January 1st. This very first debate, the same thing happened in 2015 and people started paying attention at this point. And there are people watching right now your show determining whether or not the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, deserves their money. For him, he's got more to prove than anyone else. His numbers have been dropping every single week. The polling that you showed right there, I believe he had 16% of the vote, a new low for him. There was a time earlier this year when he was at 30%. There are billionaires that are deciding, is he worth their investment? So he has the most to prove and the most to lose tonight. Second is Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Right. Your numbers have him at 10%. A lot of voters don't know him. They're curious about him, and they're being driven towards giving him a chance, taking a look. He's the Ben Carson of this time. Uh, he's the Herman Cain of this election. No electoral experience, no governing experience, but people are paying attention because up to this point, they've liked what they've heard, and now they want to hear more. Frank, the when you say Ben Carson, when you say Ben Carson and, and kind of put him in the Herman Cain camp, that sounds like you're writing him off. I, I I don't think Vivek's quite the same. He seems like no, he's got a little I, more substance than... He's significant, and his economic policy, people are paying attention. But he's taken a decidedly pro-Trump view, and what viewers should know is that there seems to be, I don't want to make an accusation without proof, but there seems to be a level of cooperation between Donald Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's figured out how to get Trump voters to give him a look, which the other candidates have not done. When you when you say or imply that there's some kind of connection between the, the, the two um, groups, is that because you think that Vivek would ultimately try to run as his VP or because there's something else at play here? Every candidate holds Trump accountable in some way for something. Vivek, and you see the numbers in front of you right now, how significant, he's at 10%. He's above the former vice president. Whenever Donald Trump says that he's been indicted, Vivek, Vivek seems to say that that's okay, that he doesn't challenge him. He doesn't but criticize Frank, him. Those articles have been written that, that he's there to, to take down DeSantis for Trump. And then it's also been written that DeSantis, in his uh, uh, debate notes, is supposed to go after uh, Vivek. So, I mean, that's the, the, I don't know if any of that's true, but the scuttlebutt. I just wonder, Frank, are they going to, who are they going to be attacking mostly tonight? Uh, I think they'll be attacking Trump more than Biden. And, and that's what all of them are saying. You know, we need to attack Biden, not each other. But when it comes down to it, they got to attack the people that, that they're uh, vying for the nomination with, don't you think? Yes, I do. And if they all pile on the governor, you've got Chris Christie that you're showing right now. If they all pile on the Florida governor, and his numbers go any further down, you're going to see money move from DeSantis. Rick, uh, we haven't talked about Tim Scott from South Carolina, who's got the highest favorability and the lowest negative of, of any of the candidates. And he's the one in Iowa that seems to be moving. And the key to Tim Scott is the fact that he has no negative. And people are looking for someone with a more positive message. And in New Hampshire, it's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie who's getting attention. Christie's actually pulled into second place in some of New Hampshire polling. So there's a lot of investment 
on people from people who watch shows like this, who are trying to figure out how to stop Donald Trump. And that's why tonight's debate is so important. You're going to see a lot of money move because of their performance tonight. Frank, well, that's sort of the, the question I was going to ask. You've been polling people for, for decades now. Are you surprised by the strength of the Trump candidacy amid these, these indictments, amid all this sort of, I don't know if it's noise or, or more? And, and therefore, the question is, how does, if you think that's going to change, what would change that? Well, there's one number that has shocked me more than any other. More voters in a CBS News poll trust Donald Trump than trust their own friends and family when it comes to issues of politics. 71% of the Republican primary electorate, that's mind-blowing when you consider what he's gone through over the last three months. It's going to be very difficult to dislodge them. And if it's going to happen, it's only going to happen because of these debates. And it's a fascinating strategic decision on Trump's part. What does this relate to, though? Because there are people who are watching right now who are, who are hearing you say that, and, and it sounds like you're saying it's mind-boggling, and, and they're sitting at home saying, that is mind-boggling. How could that be? Because Trump is now seen, it's that, that's the question, that Trump is now seen as a victim, he's now seen as being persecuted, not just prosecuted, that the level of anti-government that he's been able to dominate the communication and be able to, to suggest to the public's agreement, to the Republicans' agreement, that this is a campaign against him to keep him from getting the nomination. And I want to emphasize to viewers one thing. Donald Trump is a prohibitive favorite in the Republican primary. Uh, independents have turned against him. Democrats have turned against him. That he's got a very difficult road ahead if it's about electability. Of all the Republicans against Joe Biden, Donald Trump is the weakest at the same moment that he is by far the strongest candidate in the primaries. That, that is the thinking you would think of, of, you know, if you like the grand conspiracy theories, Frank, everybody, the more indictments uh, that come, the more popular he gets and the more unelectable right. and the more unelectable in the general, according to the people that, that would be doing it. And it, it, I guess it could backfire. I don't know. Tim Scott could get, supposedly Larry Ellison's ready to write him a big check or something, like eight figures. So you're right about that. There's money uh, for, for in, Frank, in the past, remember how we had no idea sometimes until the first or second primary and someone emerges. I can remember a few times when that happens and, and it can quickly coalesce. So I don't know if we know. I don't know if we know what's really uh, going to. And then there's the Jeb Bush. Uh, yes. You know, Trump was like in last place and Jeb and Scott Walker. Scott Walker, Scott Walker. I mean, you never collapsed. Know. Rick Perry collapsed. But these debates and I've seen estimates of eight or 10 million and I don't buy that. I think this debate is going to be closer to 15 million people watching, maybe even a few million more. I think that people are paying attention to it and the beginning of the decision making process. So tonight there are a lot more candidates have more to prove. And there are these couple that have a lot to lose in the end. Republicans do not want Joe Biden. Republicans do want a replacement. But electability is less important in August of 2019. You mean Democrats? You mean Democrats? Democrats. Yes. Democrats do yes. not. Yeah. You said Republicans. Yeah, Democrats. I think that's Michelle's but, waiting in the wings, Frank. That's what I'm hearing. And, but and it's going to happen. He, he can't back out now. He'd be a lame duck. But they're, supposedly they're going to run Michelle eventually. Have you heard that? Well, here's, here becomes the issue. 
that Joe Biden isn't running as an 80-year-old. He's running as an 86-year-old. Being in office, you're not voting for him today. You're voting for him for four yeah. years after the election. It's Do very tough. Do you think, tough. Frank, Frank they, Democrats couldn't pass over the vice president? Um, could they? That, that would be very difficult for people who say it's going to be Michelle Obama. It'd be tough to pass over Kamala Harris, wouldn't it? That, that's not right. Uh, just ask the governor of California because he's launching a campaign, not for president now, but for president four years from now. Just ask uh, someone like a Cory Booker or, a, or the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. There are people who are waiting in the wings who are prepared. Colorado, Colorado guy. The Colorado yeah. governor, uh, Polis. Uh, uh, the vice president right now has the highest unfavorability rating of any vice president since Dan Quayle, and he had the highest unfavorability rating than any vice president since Aaron Burr. So Harris, she is not a strong candidate. Could they pass over her? Absolutely. Frank, uh, we always appreciate your perspective. I'm sure we'll, uh, and I hope we have an opportunity to talk uh, very soon after the debate and uh, oh, ahead of uh, the next ones. As this well. is the beginning. So this is the day. This is the beginning of this. Oh. This is it. What? It just we just did this. You're going to be this seeing a lot it. more of Frank. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> this is the beginning. Appreciate it. Beginning of the end. <laughs> Here we go again. Next on Squawk Pod, it's 2023 and we're still talking about it. Remote work. Who should do it? Who should get back in the cubicles? Major employers are changing their policies and workers are speaking up. Labor relations consultant Jason Greer joins us. It's time to face reality. We're getting back to a five day week because that's the reality. That's what we saw before COVID and that's what we're currently seeing. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by Joe, his mic, cue. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with uh, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin, the nice thinnest, most uh, in-shape, non-ozempic person. Non-ozempic person. Yeah, and we're still thinking about uh, do not alter your brain chemistry I'm not my brain. for no, your we, were, we had a whole conversation about just the ozempic that, that's phrase. It's going to be I, an ozempic, like a I Prozac ten, nation. Ten years from now. A Prozac nation. I think the whole world, no. I think it might happen. I want to wait hope and not. see. I want to wait and see. Goldman Sachs reportedly ramping up efforts to get employees back to the office five days a week. Bloomberg saying that senior managers there bristling at the reluctance of some workers to return with its five day week push. Goldman is an outlier um, among the big companies that have embraced uh, a hybrid model to a greater extent. But some workers still balking. Uh, In one example, CNBC has learned some Amazon employees are quitting rather than follow company orders to report to a central hub location to be with the rest of their teams. Joining us now on all of this is Jason Greer, founder and president of Greer Consulting. Good morning to you, Jason. Um, we've hey, all been morning. trying to figure out what the future of work is supposed to be. This is uh, this, this sort of question mark has gone on longer than I actually thought it would. Um, are we sure. all heading back to a five-day-a-week week, or do you think this is a four-day-a-week week, a, a three-day? What, what's happening here? It's time to 
face reality. We're getting back to a five-day week because that's the reality. That's what we saw before COVID, and that's what we're currently seeing. Companies are at the, are coming from the perspective of this. It's no different than Goldman. It's no different than Disney. If I pay you every two weeks to come into the office, you come into the office. And if you don't like it, take your ball and go somewhere else because there are thousands of employees looking to get your position. So what do you think, though, of uh, in, in the Amazon example, I think is a real one. There are folks who are saying, you know, take this job and shove it. I want to do it from home or I want to do it a couple of days a week from home. And uh, welcome to the world where we have technology that might allow for some of that to actually happen and work. Here's what I'll say to them. Go. If you want to take your ball and run with it, then go home, go to another job. Because the reality is this. The days of COVID where we are able to work remotely, they're gone. Employers are asking people to come into the office. In addition, companies are in a much different position today than they were two years ago, because two years ago, they were begging employees. They were offering greater incentives. They're offering greater pay because they were having a hard time just hiring employees. Now, there are so many employees or potential employees in the market that employers feel more comfortable in telling people that it's time to come back to work. And they understand, because I hear this from executives all the time, we understand that we put these mandates into place, we're going to lose some people. But the good thing is, there's so much available talent in the market that if we lose those folks, we can replace them with people. And we can replace them with people who will actually command less than what those people who are leaving out the door are commanding. What do you make? You remember two years ago, there was an argument that, oh, if you wanted to capture talent, and you wanted to get diverse talent and you wanted to be able to find yes. people in cities where they were, you know, not in New York City in, in, or in other places where maybe the cost of living was lower, um, that this was actually going to help the country because, uh, you know, the big cities weren't necessarily going to be the winners. People were going to be spread all over. You think all of that's a fallacy? Sure. I don't think it's a fallacy. I just think it's thinking that possibly it's possibly the way the workforce is going to go within the next five to 10 years. I think there's a lot of merit in it, but the reality is this, that people just need to work. When we were talking about looking at diverse talent, we were looking at, look, you know, looking at rural talent or places outside the big cities, it's more from the perspective of employers were having such a hard time just getting people in the door. But now that there's so much available talent, that line of thinking is more futuristic than it is present. The reality is that people are looking for work. Employers are looking Why to hire people. Why do you think there's so much available talent? I'm looking at the unemployment numbers, the same numbers that you're looking at, and, and they don't look uh, particularly worse than they, they were, frankly, two years ago. I mean, it, it, you look at the UAW contract on, um, you know, UPS workers who are going to be there five years and if you're five years right. in, you're going to be paid $170,000 a year. I, I'm not sure what, when people say that they don't think that we're in a tight labor market, I'm not sure what they're talking about. Yeah, I think it comes back from the perspective of that we're looking at a lot of employers who paid people probably $50,000 to $100,000 more than what they wanted to in the first place. And those people have been laid off. When you consider the big layoffs that happened in Meta, when, you know, across the board, especially in the tech industry, that even though the market in itself is not looking in, you know, how it looked in the pandemic era, we still have available talent because employers have decided that they could actually get the work from, they can get the work from five people and two people. So there are people out there, they're just looking for work. All right. Let me ask you a separate, just a management question, Jason. Some people would argue that going to an office or being in one physical place, I don't want to say is archaic, but sort of sure. does not recognize any new technology that has come up in the last 50 years, right? It's a, it's yes. a very old school thing. We'd all go to an office because 
That's where it was the only way you could really communicate. And that in the past several years, we learned how to communicate and do other things in different ways. Is there any sure. lesson in that at all? Because you're not arguing for hybrid the, work. You're arguing for five days in the office work. I think the greatest lesson that we need to that we need to embody is the fact that we're still old school. I don't care what the technology looks like. I don't care how remote people can be in terms of doing the work. We're old school from the perspective that in order to build a culture, you need to be face to face. Your manager needs to get to know you. You need to get to know your manager. You need to get to know your coworkers. And we can only do that to an extent virtually. I think the key to work today, and I'm not talking what it's going to look like 10 to 15 years from now. The key to work today is getting employees back into the office Building but that's what I'm trying to understand. You keep saying that. You keep saying that today is somehow different than 10 years from now. So 10 years from now, you're going to be sure. an advocate for hybrid work, but today you're not? This is the part that I'm, I'm less clear about. No, it's a great question. Here's what I'm going to tell you, because I talk to managers, talk to probably thousands of managers as well as employees per year. And here's what I continue to hear from people over and over again, especially from leaders. What leaders are saying is remote work works to an extent. But what we need to do is get people back in the office, because when you look at the fact that there are so many broken relationships, and I see this all the time, there's so many broken relationships in terms of employees not feeling valued by their companies, in terms of companies not really feeling that employees value being with them. We need to get people back in the office, because if we get people back in the office, that's when we start to really build that company culture, in addition to the fact that employers... I don't disagree with you, Jason. What I'm trying to understand is you're you're advocating... I would argue to you that that can happen in the context of hybrid work, meaning people who are in for three or four sure. days a week, they get to know their, their colleagues. Oh, and I know a lot of people who would say they ultimately become more productive because they take that, that fifth day or whatever that is and, and find themselves sure. doing whatever the, the writing piece is or putting the presentation together, whatever it is, and they're doing that, that piece at home. And, and, and that both sides think that that's more productive. But then there are other managers who say, no, 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 I just want to be able to see where everybody's sitting all the time and, and that's a, that's the better path it sounds like you're in that latter camp and i'm trying to understand that yeah no worries i'm in the latter camp because i've seen that it works i think when we look at hybrid work in certain industries it works well i think in other industries it doesn't work nearly as well i think also what we're seeing is that when it was sort of the the summer of the employer the year and the employee in which the employees could basically demand and dictate the terms in which they were going to work Hybrid work was a thing. It was sort of a social negotiation between the companies and the employees. I think what we're seeing today is that the uh, power is more from the perspective of the companies than it was even two years ago. And when you see a company like Goldman is saying, we want people to come in the office five days a week, they're saying that because they feel like that's what works. I've seen it in my, in my consulting work that that works better. But if you happen to work in an industry where you can do hybrid work, make it right. work for you. I just happen to be an advocate for the fact that working in the office five days a week is what is good for business. Right. You at the office right now, Jason? No, unfortunately, I'm in a hotel room, but I'll be in the office in about an hour. Okay. Nice to see you, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks. Oh, he, want, he wanted to, to catch you, you at you. home, Jason. <laughs> he was in a hotel. You wanted to bust him at his house. I'm just saying, like, people you, think that they you know, can't work from a hotel. I mean, you, really, you can't work from anywhere. It, it, this has nothing to do with your own situation. No. Okay. I find, I, but I do, I know people. And no, no, I know, way, but you I, think you'd be situation. more productive in like a nice house somewhere. And like no, no, no. I find, I find that the hybrid. I'm just away from you. No, no. <laughs> the hybrid nature of work where you can actually be with people and see them, I think is very, very valuable. But then when it actually comes to actually, like if you're a coder or a programmer or a writer or something like that, oftentimes 
I know a lot of people, including myself, who find that part of the work process can be more productive if you can be away. That's you need an office door you can close. Well, but, and and this, whether that be at home But this goes office, to the other issue, which is that in, in a world where we all move to an open floor plan, this is pre-pandemic, right. Right. I think there's a lot of Less folks productivity who will say place, that actually yeah. it's not as productive. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being here. If you are a regular listener, let us know what you think of the podcast. You can send us a line on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Our handle remains at Squawk CNBC. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and get the very best of our show when you follow Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.